This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Reconstruction, which was the 12-year period that followed the Civil War, has long been declared a failure by historians and scholars. But why did a period that saw many advancements for the formerly enslaved, including education, political representation, and lots of other areas, why was that ultimately proven to be unsuccessful? In Daniel Brooks' new book, The Accident of Color, he describes the fluid notion of race and whiteness in two antebellum American cities, Charleston, South Carolina, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Prior to the Civil War, many so-called elite mixed race and freedmen of color enjoyed lives that bore little difference from their white American counterparts at the time. But leading to and after the Civil War, whiteness became more restrictive, race became more binary, and the former elite became subjugated to the same Jim Crow laws as the former enslaved. I'm glad to introduce to our audience here in Detroit, Daniel Brooke, who is a historian and author and is the author of this new book, The Accident of Color, A Story of Race and Reconstruction. Daniel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm truly honored to be uh, on the show on such a busy news week in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, we've got a little bit going on here, right? Um, <laughs> let's start with uh, the, just the, the the name of this book, which I think is uh, is very interesting. And and after you sort of go through the book, you you have a better understanding of what you mean. But but explain to our listeners what you mean by the accident of color. Uh, the name of the book actually comes from a direct quote uh, from a, a gentleman who runs a streetcar line in New Orleans, mm-hmm. actually the most famous streetcar line uh, even today, the St. Charles Avenue line. Uh, and the president of that streetcar company, after acceding to segregation demands from the uh, population of the city, in defending his decision, he used the quote, uh, quote, in traveling and at places of public resort, we often share these privileges in common with thieves, prostitutes, gamblers, and others who have worse sins to answer for than the accident of color. Uh, The individual who gives this quote is not only the president of the St. Charles Avenue streetcar line, he's former uh, retired Confederate General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, PGT Beauregard, literally the man who orders the first shot of the Civil War fired. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when he had returned to New Orleans, he was called the N-word on the street. Um, his family claims to be of pure French and Italian descent. Uh, I'm not saying that's incorrect, but he's definitely got photos of him in the book. He's darker featured than many of the openly mixed race people, mm-hmm. um, and his whiteness is challenged after the war. And he becomes an unlikely champion of desegregation on the streetcar system. Mm-hmm. So, so um, in the book, you make a lot of this change, I guess, that that, that unfolds uh, before. Uh, after the Civil War, in terms of the way that uh, that whiteness is is viewed and the way that whiteness is used uh, as a tool of subjugation, talk about what that change was and 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 how it kind of came about. Absolutely, what I found in my research, uh, which was initially sparked by just uh, stumbling across the fact that the New Orleans public schools had been desegregated at the height of Reconstruction, a fact that despite my wide reading in American history, I had no idea about, <laughs> uh, was 
that uh, the way it's defeated is in part by expanding whiteness, um, by creating a, a, a kind of what I call big tent whiteness, where someone like Beauregard, who um, you know has dark skin, is at, uh, if, even if we believe his family story, you know, of, of Italian descent, um, gets kind of covered under this concept of whiteness. And you see many of the people who were involved in the unification campaign, which is a uh, a uh, campaign of 1873 to accept civil rights, at least in the city, uh, and move on, of which Beauregard is kind of the celebrity endorser. Uh, you see a lot of those people peeled off into what ultimately is called the White League, which is a white supremacist terrorist organization that tries to take power violently uh, in the city. And the, the White League, unlike, say, the Klan, which wears masks, is an open has open roles, and I've read the roles, and you find, of course, you find names like Richards and Smith in the White Leagues, but you also find names like Hyman and Garcia in the White Leagues, mm-hmm. and you see how whiteness is kind of expanding to to take in the the people who had been uh, what I call allies at the fringes of whiteness, who had been united around civil rights and kind of pick them off into this white supremacist category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you make, uh, of course, this this case about uh, before and after the war through the story of these two cities, Charleston, South Carolina, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, it give us a give us a sense of the role that those cities play in this narrative about race and and whiteness before and after the war. Sure, I initially honed in on these two cities because I found that they'd made such outsized progress in civil rights in this era. Um, both cities desegregate their streetcars. Both cities desegregate their police departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Orleans desegregates its public schools. Uh, activists from Charleston uh, go up to Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, and desegregate the University of South Carolina, which is desegregated at the height of radical reconstruction. Uh, again, a fact I had no idea about. It was fascinating to research and write about. And when I looked, at, when I began to ponder why, um, it, it became clear that the system of race that the two cities were using in colonial times and even in antebellum times was distinctive from the system that was used in, in, the, in the rest of the country. Um, both were deeply linked to the Caribbean and Latin America and had a much more fluid concept of race. Uh, both cities had large free people of color communities. And in both cities, these communities were openly biracial, openly mixed race, uh, and generally had good relationships both with their uh, white relatives and their non-white relatives. Um, so it's, it's really a story uh, of these people who are caught in, in, the, in the bind of the, of the black-white binary where they don't fit. And also, tragically, a, a story of family disownment uh, as Reconstruction collapses and these families are split along the lines of, of white and black. Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting when I'm hearing you sort of talk about this uh, and thinking about the discussions that we have today about race and uh, defining who's American, defining uh, who belongs. These are not, these are not unfamiliar, these are not unfamiliar themes uh, to us in 2019. No, they're, they're, they're right back in the headlines. I mean, I wrote the book, I initially began the book in a more hopeful time. Uh, I began it during the Obama administration, even before, before Ferguson. Um, I finished the book under under the Trump administration, um, and I it, it definitely informed how I how I wrote. Um, in the very beginning of the book, I trace uh, two openly mixed race activists who go to the White House to lobby President Lincoln for voting rights for equal voting rights, 
Um, and I end up having the line that they did not believe that their French heritage, their African heritage made them any less American than their French heritage did. Um, that is a line that in the past few weeks just keeps coming back to me. Hmm. Uh, the idea that they felt they were open, you know, they were open about their background, unlike so many Americans who, uh, you know, either cover it up or use these, these overarching categories of white and black to, to obscure uh, the, the full diversity of their backgrounds. And, and the fact that they felt that an American could be of any heritage and all heritages uh, I did not think that this was going to be something subject to debate in 2019, but I think we're all uh, being shocked and, and disturbed by, by what could be up for debate these days. Yeah. Um, of course, in the book, you also kind of ask us to to rethink the period of Reconstruction and uh, reconsider some of the things that, that happened at that time and, and think again about whether Reconstruction was a failure, of course. Uh, you know, it, it never really gets the opportunity uh, to to do many of the things that were starting to happen or were or were planned to happen. Uh, and I, I've always thought of that as the reason that that most historians, you know, describe it as a failure. Uh, you say though that even in this twelve-year uh, period, this shortened twelve-year period, we got some important things done. Yeah, there was. Tremendous progress during this period that uh, you know was overtly covered up by white supremacists. This uh, this desegregation of the New Orleans public schools. I went into the archives of the local school district to read the the records, and they'd all been removed. I mean, the, the period from 1871 to 1877 had been disappeared from our local school board records here. Um, so part of it is we we don't know um, everything we should about this period because you know in the end the bad guys won and the bad guys write the history. Now I'm not saying that. <laughs> Uh, Reconstruction ultimately was a smashing success. The, all of its greatest successes were destroyed. But there were tremendous successes that every American should know about. There are tremendous heroes who have never gotten their due. There's a character in the book who is uh, in Mary P. Bowers, who takes Mouth to sit in on a Charleston streetcar and ends up desegregating the, the streetcar system in 1867, nearly a century before Rosa Parks does the same thing. Now, mm-hmm. you know, my, my little nephew's in elementary school, learn about Rosa Parks. Uh, Mary P. Bowers has been completely lost in history. We have no excellent images of her. There's not even any statues in Charleston or memorials in Charleston to her. Uh, so it's important that these these figures get their due. Um, and then it's also important that we approach the past without the blinders of the present. I mean, the biggest uh, and most difficult part of writing this book was realizing that the terms of black and white are fungible and have changed over history. Uh, and then when we look on this period and these places with, the, with our contemporary notions of black and white, we're in some ways um, kind of looking at them ahistorically. We need to see these characters as they saw themselves, as people who in many cases said, you know, we're, it's not that we're not black and we're not white, but, but we are black and we are white. Mm. We're both and, you know, have good relationships with all, all of our uh, all of our relatives, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's also a theme, of course, that that casts forward to today. That that uh, the, the the coloring, I guess, of of America. Yeah, um, I mean, I think we're in a in a better position. I mean, I think part of why I've um, had some insight into this subject matter is, is you know living in a country that's rapidly diversifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think the um, Latin American immigration to the United States is changing the way we think about race 
um, obviously, you know, race works very differently in Latin America, where there's wide acceptance um, that people in the New World have roots on many continents. The same individuals have roots on many continents. Uh, and I think the way that that is destabilizing race in America, hopefully, you know, will uh, will be a liberating way as as it's being used uh, by white nationalists. It's, of course, being, being used in very destructive ways. But I think there are opportunities there uh, to build a, a, a better America as well. I'm talking with Daniel Brook, a historian and author, uh, whose book, news new book, is called "The Accident of Color: A Story of Race and Reconstruction." Uh, it asks us, it asks us to uh, go back and reconsider some of the things that we have uh, believed uh, about that period after the Civil War, uh, where the federal government really tries to uh, unfold. Uh, unfurl some of the uh, equality that was promised to the formerly enslaved uh, after the war. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Considering the history of slavery, Reconstruction, and Jim Crow in this country, how far do you think we've actually come in terms of race and opportunity? Uh, would you support reparations uh, as a way to further that narrative. Uh, that came up quite a bit yesterday on the debate stage as uh, the Democrats who are here in town debating uh, uh, as part of the presidential campaign, uh, they really did get to uh, this question of reparations. This is the first cycle, presidential cycle, that I think uh, anyone can remember in which reparations is an actual issue that we're talking about. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, do you support the idea of reparations? Do you think it's a practical solution uh, or a moral solution that you can get behind? Uh, or do you think that's the kind of thing that couldn't happen uh, and wouldn't solve our problems? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. <clears throat> you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Hi, I wanted to ask uh, your guests: Did uh, did the government provide provide education for the masses of white people before uh, Reconstruction? Hmm. Uh, great question, Tim. Uh, Daniel Brooke, talk about the role that uh, that public education plays uh, in this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first statewide public schools uh, for students of any of any color uh, are, are built by the Reconstruction government. Um, on, in slavery times, uh, most southern states, especially rural areas, have no public school system, um, and students whose parents are poor uh, of any of any uh, regardless of race are are not typically not educated at all. Of course, the states at this point before the Civil War have passed laws explicitly forbidding uh, the education of, of enslaved Americans as well. So the, the Reconstruction governments, uh, in part, tried to build um, statewide school systems in South Carolina and Louisiana, based on their uh, more radical state constitutions, uh, tried to build these systems without regard to race, Try to build integrated systems. Uh, and as I mentioned in the book, do have some success, uh, notably the New Orleans Public Schools and the University of South Carolina. Um, but you can see in this in this period a lot of the issues we're still uh, we're still talking about and fighting over, and also uh, how the how government uh, provision of social services uh, is often uh, filtered through a racial lens and often imp opposed 
by white Americans on on racial grounds uh, in a sort of self-defeating way. Mm. Uh, we certainly I think that last night I think we we like to see the debate of the kind of uh, first we're going to talk about healthcare and uh, social provision, and then we're going to talk about race. But I do not see uh, that clear distinction. I think it's not, it's no coincidence that the two uh, societies in the world that can afford universal healthcare and don't have it are South or, uh, South Africa and the United States of America. And by that you mean uh, two two countries that have. Uh, struggled the way they have with racism uh, are are also the ones who don't provide universal health care. You see a connection. There. Absolutely. The, the two countries that have state-imposed uh, Jim Crow or apartheid laws, the two countries uh, that use ra- where racial division is used cynically uh, to, to divide uh, citizens of the same country against each other, yes, those are the two countries that have never uh, provided equal and universal health care to their citizens. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel Brook. We also want to continue to hear from you about last night's debate. The first 10 presidential candidates on the Democratic side were on stage talking about the issues. What did you think? What did you come away with? Did you learn something that you didn't expect to learn? Did you come closer to making a decision about who you might vote for? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Daniel Brook, a historian and author, author of the book, The Accident of Color, A Story of Race and Reconstruction. We're having a conversation about what Reconstruction actually accomplished in American history. Uh, Also, this concept of whiteness that takes hold uh, in a very different way after the Civil War than it did before. How did that affect not just people back then, uh, but how does that affect the narrative on race and racism today here in the United States? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019 if you want to join the conversation. Uh, Also give us a call and let us know what you thought of the first night of the presidential Democratic debates here in Detroit, which took place last night. Uh, Tomorrow on the show, we are going to talk more in depth about these debates. Uh, We'll have a, a great panel assembled to pick it all apart and tell us what it means. Uh, But uh, if you have reactions to the first night, of course, uh, we would love to hear from you today. Uh, Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Daryl in Detroit. Daryl, what's on your mind? How are you doing? I just wanted to make uh, a little statement about uh, the reparations issue. I'm in favor of reparations, but I'm in favor of reparations done right. I think a handout or uh, just give throwing money at people, I don't think that solves anything. I I think reparations should possibly come in the form of education um, or land, um, something that that um, you know will actually make a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think if you hand hand not all of us, but if you hand some of us money and say, here, go for it. I think uh, GM and Ford are all going to be a lot richer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Daryl, I, I appreciate the call uh, and, and the comments. Uh, 
Uh, Daniel Brooke, this is an issue that that has been with us for a long time. I mean, as I said earlier, I don't know that we've seen reparations discussed in the context of a presidential election very much before, certainly not in recent times. But this idea of reparations, of recompense uh, for the formerly enslaved, uh, of course, uh, it grows out of that period uh, after after the Civil War um, and this notion of what it should look like, whether it should be money, whether it should be land, whether it should be opportunity, uh, also is is a very old conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think at this point there, there's no excuse for any of the Democratic candidates not to support HR 40, which is which purely creates a commission to look to into yeah. these concepts. Um, and I think the commission would find interesting things. I mean, part of many of the characters in my book who are civil rights leaders after the Civil War had been free before it, were openly mixed race. A uh, handful of them even owned slaves themselves. They were mixed race slave owners, which was a phenomenon that was uh, very uncommon in most of the country, but quite common uh, in, in New Orleans and, and Charleston. Mm-hmm. Um, and these characters are brought low by, by Jim Crow. Uh, I think it's important not to pin all of America's uh, contemporary racial problems on slavery. I mean, there was slavery uh, all over the New World, uh, certainly Colombia, Brazil, etc. Nowhere has the levels of racial inequality that the United States does. And I think that that's deeply uh, connected to the fact that after emancipation, the United States alone is the only country that imposes Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, thanks very much, Daryl, for the call and the comments. Let's go to Bart in Detroit. Bart, what's on your mind? What's up, dude? Man, like like we were talking about trusting any of those Democrats up there. Like the only person that looked remotely human was Burn Dog. Like we're going to trust that putty-faced John Delaney with marbles for eyes. Did you see that guy smile? <laughs> you didn't. You said, okay, Bart. So you, you were not impressed, I guess, by uh, the cast of characters on stage. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like you did. You did like Bernie Sanders, uh, who I thought did pretty well uh, as well. Bart, I really appreciate uh, you listening, and uh, I really appreciate uh, the call. Um, uh, Daniel Brooke, I wonder. Uh, I wonder if you can talk more about uh, the, the the parallels that we're seeing, I guess, on stage uh, here in Detroit uh, between uh, now the way we talk about race and racism and how to address it, and the things that you write about uh, in, in your book. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly um, seeing the the concept of white nationalism raise raise its ugly head again, and that. Uh, it is white nationalism that ultimately defeats Reconstruction. Um, there's an active argument mm-hmm. in the period I'm writing about about whether uh, citizenship has has a race-based component, whether voting has a race-based component, whether Americanness has a race-based component. Um, and the, the white nationalists win win this fight, not a fair fight, in, in the year, year I'm writing about, often a violent terrorist fight, uh, sometimes a violent terrorist fight even today. Um, they They win that, and we're still... We're still wrestling with with the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also wrestling with how, uh, you know, in, in my period, how whiteness is used, um, how, how whiteness is used to, to ratchet back uh, state provision of, of equal rights to everyone, including you know white identified Americans, as we we talked about, uh, you know, funding for the public schools or even voting. I mean, by nineteen by the nineteen forties in Mississippi, uh, 
hardly any white people can, are voting either. Um, you know, it's a truly an oligarchy where the only people who can pay the, the poll tax and pass the literacy tax are a handful of rich white people. Um, should look at the total vote numbers coming out of the state of Mississippi like in the 1930s and 40s versus the actual population of the state. It's just stunning. Um, and unfortunately, again, you know, race is being used uh, as a way to uh, divide the country and, and hold it back. Uh, very clearly with this president who ran, uh, you know, if you read the interview he did with the Washington Post after he was elected, he said he was going to uh, provide health care for everyone regardless of ability to pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead, he's uh, offered no health care plan. He's tried to take health care away from no, tens of millions of Americans. And instead, uh, he's what, um, what, uh, what I believe Martin Luther King called the thin, the thin rule of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's go to Jim in Southfield. Jim, hey, thanks, uh, Stephen. Hey, I just have a hopefully a brief comment. When I watched the debate, and I got to admit, I had to tune off at ten fifteen. It's, they could have stayed in D.C. They didn't address the Midwest. They didn't address Detroit at all. I mean, hmm. you know, I'll, you know, I'll give you my two second rant, and that is, we need skilled tradesmen to build affordable housing in Detroit. And giving a guy free college diploma doesn't make him a plumber or a drywall or a roof. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. You know, I just don't get it. We have a monster need. We need. We have jobs that need to be filled. We could have crews of skilled tradesmen go down to Florida and knock down, you know, take care of those uh, hurricane houses, rebuild. We could have crews that could go to California and rebuild the burned-out towns. Come on, we just need skilled tradesmen. Let's do it. It ain't that hard. And, it is no big government program. Let's just get it going. And you didn't feel as though the candidates last night were were, were focused on on that issue as it Not pertains to the Medicare for all. I mean, Medicare is just one way to pay for health care. You know, I mean, the German system is private, but we won't go there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they, you know, come on, talk about the Midwest. We have mm. rural areas that could use jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of guys in rural areas, they have a big truck, and they go all over the country. They don't have to move to the cities to learn how to code mm. or go to college. I mean, yeah. you know. Jim, I, I, I appreciate the call, and, and I hear your frustration about uh, uh, about the, the candidates. I mean, I think, I think if we were expecting that they were going to come here and talk, uh, extensively, specifically about Detroit, we were probably fooling ourselves. Uh, that's not really the way these things work. They are trying to sort of play to a national audience. I, I too, though, thought they might spend a little more time than they did uh, talking about where they were and the kinds of things that uh, that that we're dealing with. And and maybe uh, maybe tonight, uh, with a different group of people on stage, there might be more. Uh, there might be more of that. Uh, so, Jim, don't give up just yet. We have a whole other uh, set of 10 uh, candidates who will take the stage tonight, and we'll see how much uh, how much they can actually talk about uh, the issues that, that you're more concerned with. Um, let's try to get uh, another quick call in here before we end the show. Robert in Detroit, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good. Go ahead. It's my uh, first-time caller, and I appreciate the show and everything. You do a great job. Thank, thank you off. very much. Okay, so uh, I just want to make a quick comment. So on the reparations thing, I would say probably the uh, taxes would be the best bet, you know, and like cutting taxes or maybe cutting out some taxes. And then as the a way of with, yeah, go, oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You're saying cut taxes as a way of giving reparations so that African Americans wouldn't pay taxes? 
Well, I mean, it, it, it probably couldn't be a total cut out of taxes <laughs> because, you know, that would probably take a, a big toll on the, uh, the entire base. Mm-hmm. But maybe like a discounted, you know, maybe like a 50% cut of taxes. That would be like one thing we can do. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. on um, the thing of like, say, giving land, the problem with that is that where would the land be? Because right. <laughs> it wouldn't be like, if it was in Detroit, you could, you know, unless you're just giving the land to your house, like it would have to be somewhere like in a rural area somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert, I appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds left, Daniel Brooke. I wonder what you make of this, again, this idea of how reparations could unfold. That's that's a, a, an old theme as well, right? Yeah, well, on the, the cover of my book, we run a photo taken by abolitionists of recently emancipated uh slaves from right. New Orleans, and they, they span the entire color spectrum from what we would describe as sort of lily white to, to jet black and everything in between. Uh, by the time slavery was abolished in the country, um, you know, slaves had all skin tones, and surely many of uh, many of the lighter-looking slaves passed into white society. That doesn't mean that they were not um, deprived of literacy and wealth by slavery. Right. Um, right. But it does mean that their their descendants did not suffer under Jim Crow. And I do feel like um, we do need to address the, the racial yeah. issue that exists in the United States today. And that's rooted Daniel, ultimately... Uh, Daniel, we're, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I'm really okay. glad right. that, uh, that you joined us, author of The Accident thank of you Color. Me. Yeah, thank you. Tomorrow, we're going to spend the hour recapping and analyzing the second round of Democratic debates that are going to finish up tonight right here in Detroit. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.